Greetings, dear listeners. We invited Oliver Traldi onto the pod this week. Oliver is an engaging writer and thinker, a doctoral philosophy student at the University of Notre Dame, a writing fellow at Jonathan Haidt's Heterodox Academy, and someone you've probably encountered on social media. His new article, With All Due Respect to the Experts, published by American Compass, caught our attention. The problems with technocracy are something that has occupied our attention on this pod for a while, and Oliver's contribution to the debate struck us as very important. We start out talking about crime, public health, and the difficulty of pinpointing truth and fact in a pluralistic democratic society. What is the role of experts, really? Then, in the bonus episode, for paying members only, we get deeper into the question of elites and the moral qualities required for effective leadership. Thanks for your support. On to the show. So I don't know, Shadi, let's start with what's on your mind. That's always more interesting. As I was telling <laughs> Oliver, I'm I'm in Albania. Like, I don't know if expertise is on my mind. Well, maybe in some ways, but uh, I don't know. You're you're more you're more in the shit, the American shit right now. So uh, I guess you know what's on my mind. Go on. Crime. Crime. That's true. Mm-hmm. Crime is on. Your I mind. feel like I'm being red pilled in real time. <laughs> You've always been red pilled. You're just discovering. It's getting the worse, man. I have to be. Re- I have to be careful. Yeah. Because I. Because I, I don't. I don't want. I mean. And then you have all these people online who are telling me that I should consider voting for a different party if I'm so bothered by the Democrats. Like Elon Musk, maybe. (laughs) Like Elon Musk, exactly. But um, yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, crime is quite relevant at precisely this moment as we speak and as we're recording this episode because the progressive district attorney of San Francisco, very progressive, in fact. Um, per, uh, you know, he was also he's controversial because his parents were in the the Weather right. Underground the weather terrorist underground, group, right. Chesa Boudin, and he was just successfully recalled, so he will no longer be the city's chief prosecutor. So that's obviously a big deal and has potentially repercussions well beyond. But it also gets to just a broader question of how we assess reality, because one of the ongoing debates when it comes to crime in major cities is is crime actually rising? And you'd think that that could be numerically assessed, that there are rates and there are available statistics. But as it turns out, American observers cannot agree on whether or to what extent crime is rising in cities like San Francisco, New York City, Chicago, and Philadelphia. So it's a very good tie-in to the topic of our conversation, or at least one of the topics of our conversation, because, and I'm not just saying this, um, so you guys will hear another voice, um, Oliver Traldi, in a moment, but (laughs) if he decides to speak. (laughs) Hi, Oliver. Hey, how's it going? Good to be on. Welcome. So, you know, I'm not just saying this because I think you're cool and we hung out the other week when you were in D.C. I'm saying this because I actually mean it. Your piece, which is called um, With All Due Respect to the Experts, I think that's what it's called. <laughs> yeah, something which like I just, that. Which I just, yeah, which I just reread um, today before this. And I think it's actually more relevant. It came out a couple of weeks ago. 
I think it's newly relevant today. It gets at what I think is one of the fundamental questions in our national debate. If we go beyond all the superficial bullshit, it's actually about how we assess the world around us. What is real? Mm -hmm. What is true? Right. What constitutes facts? What constitutes expertise? And what I like about your piece is that you you know you you take a you take a different. Let's say that you diverge from the experts on what expertise actually is, and you know it raises the question: Can you actually trust experts on what expertise is, considering that they have a vested interest in creating this category where they are the yeah. sort of secular priesthood? That they yeah, are the ones who have the it, yeah. information and the knowledge and the facts, and then it's up to us as mere mortals to listen to them. Of course, it's somewhat odd that I'm saying this, considering that I suppose I'm considered part of the expert class, at least on some things. And Demir is too. Right. In fact, I... he's being an expert right now in Albania <laughs> yeah. because he works uh -huh. on European issues and so forth. But maybe just to get us started, um, and we'll of course include a link to your article in the show notes. I really do mean this. You guys who are listening right now, you should you should read this in full. It's a, it's a little bit long, but not too long. It's excellent. But Oliver, do you just wanna maybe tell us a little bit about why you felt it was important to write about this at this particular moment? Um, and maybe what the reaction has been as well, because a lot of this stuff seems intuitive to me, but a lot of people get angry when you point out that expertise is sometimes at least a fiction. It's an illusion. Yes. So, um, you know, I think in part it's been, it, it was a good moment to write about expertise because of um, all of the sort of mistakes that were made or mistakes or miscommunications or sometimes you know, what you might call intentional miscommunications or noble lies or whatever uh, during the early days of COVID, um, you know, from the from the WHO and uh, from Fauci and uh, just in general. Uh, so I think COVID, COVID was a big moment um, for, for wondering about experts, but my life has been kind of punctuated by moments like that. And in a way, I think it's kind of always an apt moment to be wondering just how well are the technocrats doing, just how well are we being governed by, you know, whatever whatever relevant, you know, the NGO industrial complex or the administrative state or whatever group of experts you're particularly concerned about. Um, you know, I think to me, the Iraq war was a case of expert failure. The 2008 financial crash was a case of expert failure. In a way, uh, you know, the failure to predict uh, Trump being elected in 2016 was also a case of expert failure. Um, so I think it's just kind of every so often there are these kind of issues where where the experts sort of are doing just a horrible job um, at assessing what's actually going on around them. Um, and I actually got into writing about this sort of like just writing in general like doing political writing, going back to school to finish my philosophy degree and things like that. Um, I actually got into this stuff basically wondering about what makes institutions good in terms of um, how, how different people's viewpoints kind of filter up to create, you know, like more robust 
more reliable, uh, you know, what you might call knowledge producing mechanisms. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a bit of a mess of an answer. Um, no, no, that's, that's but definitely, great. definitely the, the most this, recent hmm. event I think has been COVID that's been, that's been, that's been relevant to expertise. Um, yeah. And, and one thing maybe I'll just like introduce so just people get a taste of your argument. So I think it's a very good, um, analogy to explore. So you do mention at the start of your piece, a New Yorker cartoon, which as I suppose most New Yorker cartoons are, was a little bit smug and patronizing in that very kind of irritating liberal way. Yeah, yeah. Um, But basically the cartoon said, I had a picture of people presumably on a plane. Um, These smug pilots, someone is, someone who's also presumably in coach and not in first class is saying, quote unquote, (laughs) these smug pilots have lost touch with regular passengers like us. Who thinks I should fly the plane? And then this is a way to basically poke fun and say, um, the the ordinary, um, presumably deplorable Trump supporter types who don't like experts, they want to they want to take the reins of the plane themselves and then presumably crash the plane and make a lot of people die. But what you say, because they don't respect expertise, so they should, right. just as they respect the, you know, if you respect a pilot and you're not going to take take over for him or her, you should also not take over for, say, Fauci or whatever. And you say, um, and I'll just quote this, because this gets at something quite fundamental. You say, citizens in a democracy are not akin to airline passengers buckled quietly into their seats and powerless to affect change. Okay, there's, <laughs> I miss, I misread it because it, it's a multiple clause sentence, <laughs> but then, <laughs> but then you, but then you go on to say, um, that none of us thinks we know better than a plane's captain, yet we often think we know better than experts in matters of politics suggests differences between those domains. So this is the mm-hmm. fundamental point. It's different to pilot a plane than it is to be a political scientist or an economist or a health expert. There are different ways to objectively assess whether someone's good at flying a plane because the results are clear. Either it crashes or it doesn't. Either you get them to the destination or you don't. Where in other domains of expertise, it is more subjective. Um, As, you know, political scientists um, disagreed on whether the Iraq war was good or um, political scientists disagree on to what extent democracy is the best form of government or which different kinds of democracies are more appropriate, parliamentary systems versus presidential. These are not things that you can objectively assess as easily. Do you maybe want to tell us how should we as observers trying to make sense of this, how should we distinguish between different kinds of expertise and different kinds of domains? Yeah. So uh, a few things that I touched on in in the article. So one of the, one of the things, one of the major kind of things that's talked about in philosophy with regard to expertise is what's called the novice expert problem. Basically, the novice expert problem is, I don't know much about this domain. You're telling me that you know a lot about this domain, but kind of in order to assess that you know a lot directly, I would have to know a lot, right? I would have to be able to check your opinions against mine to see whether you're actually an expert. But as the novice, that's precisely what I can't do. Right. So to get around that, we have all of these 
we have all these apparatus, right? We have we have accreditations, we have um, diplomas. You know, you pass your boards, you get licensed as a doctor, as a lawyer, as an accountant, right? Um, and that's how you know these people are experts. Um, and so we have to do certain things to. Um, we have to have a kind of background trust in the system that these accrediting boards and universities and what, what the philosopher Alvin Goldman calls meta-experts um, are actually doing a good job. And I think that's that's part of the story that I didn't get into much here. But when I read um, someone like Aaron Sabarium writing about, oh, here's what's going on at the American uh, Medical Association, here's what's going on at the American Bar Association, um, here's what's going on in America's top colleges and universities, law schools, things like that. Um, and when I look at, you know, here are the people winning MacArthur Genius Grants, winning uh, other kinds of awards, you know, being kind of feted by the this meta-expert system, um, you start to wonder whether the people who are being kind of accredited and pushed forward as experts are really the sorts of people you should trust, right? So you have to be kind of on the lookout for how this meta-expert system is actually producing experts um, and, and whether you think these sort of secondary features, right, the non-direct features, you can never directly know as a non-expert that somebody's an expert because you don't have the knowledge. So you have to think, how well are these people doing um, compared to some maybe objective criteria? Like, do the, you know, I'm in a United plane. How often do they crash, right? That'll tell me whether I should trust the pilots, right? Does United yeah. have a system in place and you can think about what are the incentives that the pilot has. Uh, maybe they'll lose their job. Um, if you think about what happens if an academic publishes an article that turns out to be false. Well, you know, nothing, you know, often. Or they'll be promoted. They're, 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 yeah, they'll be promoted in some way, right? Um, they'll kind of <laughs> fail upwards. Um, and so those are differences between domains. And I also think, you know, it's possible to be, it's important to be careful about this as well, right? Because often you'll have a situation of what seems like expert failure, but you lack counterfactual knowledge, right? So you say, well, look look how bad COVID got because they didn't say this about masks and they didn't close up the borders soon enough and this and that. But to really, to like, to really know that they made a bad decision, you have to sort of game out what would have happened if they made this choice? What would have happened if they made that choice? And sort of what was the information available to them? What was the cost-benefit analysis available to them? Um, so I do think that there are some cases where I think people are a little bit um, too quick to be distressful. Um, and certainly many cases where I think people are um, far too quick to be trusting. But, so Oliver, let me just push, I guess I think there's a lot going on in your article and even in, in our brief conversation so far. And it's, it's, I, I guess the thing that, that bugs me about it is, it doesn't bug me about your argument, but just want to sort of on, on, on like pick it apart a little bit here. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 it, it's what you're calling this question of domains of, you know, there's a certain kind of technical expertise right. and then there's this other stuff, which we call expertise, but isn't, you know, I mean, I, I think I've mentioned this before, maybe on the podcast, but um, I probably mentioned it to Shadi, certainly not in the context of the podcast. But it was when I was working at the American Interest Magazine uh, before my my current think tank expert uh, <laughs> existence, <laughs> we went to a, uh, a conference, a publishing conference, um, 
And it was, you know, it was not early times of the internet, but basically it was while the sort of still print was a thing and there was this whole sort of thing, how to, how to print magazines make the jump to digital and it was all talk about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a guy there, I'm trying to remember, I think he was the, maybe the CEO of LinkedIn, I think. And LinkedIn at that point, I think LinkedIn still does this to a certain extent, but it's not the world I inhabit. Um, they were cultivating to get people, you know, to write essays for LinkedIn, sort of uh-huh. pieces, and to, you know, to, to write for it, to contribute to it. And I remember the, the guy said this to, you know, a group of sort of publishing people. He said, don't forget what you guys that do opinion journalism or opinion writing or analysis. It's like, don't forget what sphere you're in. You like to think that you are in this kind of highfalutin, you know, uh, zone, but really you're entertainment. And what you're doing is you're competing for eyeballs with Netflix, with, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, any other, with television, with sports, with any other thing that, that is competing for people's attention. And understand that if you're going to run a, a magazine, a publication around this, understand that's the challenge and that's the sphere that you're operating in is, is entertainment. And he said, you know, think about like what the role of a David Brooks is. He said the role of an opinion journalist like David Brooks is to give people ideas that then they can sort of internalize, make their own, and then maybe, you know, either trot out at the water cooler or at the bar after work Mm -hmm. to be able to spark conversation with other people. Maybe not even own as their own, but be like, oh, did you read the David Brooks column? And then like have an argument about it because they've thought about it or something like that. So there's a utilitarian aspect there that has nothing to do with outcomes, which I, I, it's always stuck in my head. That is, 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 I think it's properly contextualized to me, the entire sort of pundit world, you know, which mm-hmm. styles itself in the realm of expertise and falls into this trap of airplanes and things like that. But it's even interesting in the way you were talking about it, you know, the failures of expert expertise. And this is, you know, that's sort of a long way to get to this question, you know, said like the failure to predict Trump is a failure of expertise. One other, like, notable failure of expertise is like the failure to predict the end of communism. This is talked about a lot that the CIA failed Mm -hmm. to like see this coming. And, um, you know, to a certain extent, I almost think to myself, what is the purpose of the CIA? Uh, in a lot of, in a lot of these sorts of spheres, it's, it's not to, to predict the future. It's to, I think maybe scope out potential bad scenarios and help us plan around those in a hostile world. I think that's the role, the proper, proper role of sort of, I don't know, intelligence expertise or analysis in that sort mm-hmm. of sense. So getting it right that the Soviet Union collapsed at that point, I don't think is necessarily a failure because the point is to plan for the worst case scenario that the Soviet Union continues uh-huh. on for another 40 years, you know? And so in that sense, it's not a failure. Yet there's that there's that that mistaken domain mistake that we make that A, expertise is about predicting the future. So we judge it in whether they do it well and so then you compare it to like planes falling out of the sky or not, but that seems like a like a bad sort of mm-hmm. you know uh, connection comparison comparison. And then there's the other part, which is that like so much of our expert class in this credentialing stuff is built around this idea that 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 you know again what Shadi was getting at. It's like creating this priesthood of a certain sense and and imparting them a role that actually, if you look at how they the role they play in society, it's not that. You know, like David Brooks is not there to actually give wisdom and predict the future, give insight. He's actually there to entertain us. 
You know, no, no, right. I mean, I just want to say, can I just complicate something right there? Because on. on David, on David Brooks, if I may, sure. First of all, I think that there is a desire on the part of David Brooks and 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 other opinion columnists to actually affect outcomes. So they do want people to potentially change their views on something and to act differently in their own lives. So, I mean, that's different than entertainment, even though it could potentially be entertaining in a, in a sort of positive way where you enjoy what you're reading and so forth. But also I think that opinion columnists like David Brooks, I mean, David Brooks does not um, is not claiming to be a subject matter expert in the way that an academic who has a very specialized field of study is claiming to be right. an expert. And that's why they're called opinion columnists because they're being upfront about the fact that they are presenting their opinion. I, I think it becomes quite different when you have credentialed academics who are known to specialize in a particular area. That seems to me to be a different category. Oliver, Does that make ahead. sense to me? It makes sense to me, but Oliver, just run with wherever, whatever you want from that and just sort of like pick it apart because I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm taking so, point shoddy, but go ahead, Oliver, please. Yeah, so, well, I, I don't know if that I was going to pick it apart. Um, you know, I think one thing you might say is if some of the people who are taken to be experts are actually just entertainers, then you might just say, okay, what I should have said is like, don't mistake them for experts, right? Um, and maybe part of their entertainment act is acting like experts, but remember that it's just an act. So that's one thing you could say. Um, yeah, but but I, th I think Shadi is right that there's that pundits pundits are kind of one part of what's going on here. Um, and there was, you know, after the 2016 election, there was this. I think it was Michael Tracy or someone who had this idea to have what he called a pundit accountability project, mm -hmm. where it was basically um, like anybody who'd, who'd failed, you know, people just completely failed to understand what was going on in that election. You know, at one point, Ezra Klein wrote that uh, he thought, you know, Carly Fiorina had a decent chance to be the Republican nominee for president um, and things like that. But you might just think, okay, those are just pundits. They're not in the, they're not in the business of actually making predictions. They're just in the business of kind of getting eyeballs. And then, yeah, the answer to that would be don't make the mistake just understand that you're you're being entertained and that you're you're not um, nothing deeper is going on. Regarding the the CIA, I think your argument there is is actually a good one. Um, organizations do need to um, spend their resources wisely, right? And when they think about um, which options are we going to plan for, which eventualities are we going to plan for? Um, of course, they're going to want to plan for the ones where, um, you know, planning will have the most upside and failing to plan will have the most downside, right? So it, often those will be the, the worst case scenarios. So I don't think of that as a failure to ex of expertise um, necessarily. And often you do see sometimes when, when it looks like an organization that has failed, sometimes you, you look into kind of what went on in the background and you say, okay, actually, this is all this is all completely reasonable, um, kind of within within the the resources that they had and the information that they had at the time. They actually made completely reasonable decisions, um, and that happens a lot when you when you kind of actually look deeply into stories of what looked like organizational failure. I think. 
Um, so I do think, like I said before, I do think people are sometimes um, harder than they should be on institutions, harder than they should be on on experts um, in that way. But again, you know, I I think you know the the pundit accountability project or whatever Tracy was talking about. I, I I've heard that one knocking around again, even around that time that I was talking about being at that conference. I mean, I've had friends who say that you know, like now we can you know it's databases have been democratized. We can actually track this stuff a lot better. Someone should sit down and, and take any prediction that any set of pundits has made, and that should disqualify them if they're like consistently wrong on this. And this gets to, to your point, Shadi, about, you know, about the intentions of these people. I mean, I think there's a, there's a certain level of, I don't know if it's false consciousness, but a, like a, 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 a certain sense of self-importance among the pundit class that they actually serve a much higher and exalted role than they in fact right. do. You know, I mean, that's the only case I'd be making, not against contra David Brooks, quad David Brooks, but any any one in the class of pundits. In fact, any one of us, when we sit down and put pen to paper to put down our exalted thoughts for, you know, the people to consume, we think that we are, you know, moving the discussion and changing, you know, like right. even slightly on the margins, changing the 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 sort of the 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 direction of a lot of these things going we may be just completely just you know high on our own supply and like really proud of ourselves i mean there's that there's that great i think it was that that old columnist jack german said something like what was the line uh he said um writing uh an op-ed is like pissing yourself in a dark suit it feels great but nobody <laughs> notices right something like that and it, it's oh. and it's it's, it's and, and I mean, I don't know, you know, but I don't think, just, I don't think either of those things are true about <laughs> pissing yourself. I know exactly. So that's, I, that's well, in any case, I, that's, that's, that's why I just sort of brief, I think that that part of what's going on in the big expertise debate, and this doesn't get to the Fauci's and the rest of it. I think we should delve into that because I think there's a lot of really good stuff in the debate, but I, I do want to sort of try and at least tease out this, this problem that we have. And I think part of what, what drives this this cycle of distrust in the expert class is that there's a class of people who style themselves experts and have an exalted opinion of themselves. Their actual social role is not what they think it is. Right. Like, and, and they're wrong all the time. And so you get like this kind of weird feedback loop that people are reacting to their haughtiness, uh, notice that they're wrong all the time, and then don't trust them. And then there's this like feedback loop around nothing. Like basically, you know, there's a bunch of entertainers working in, in like like opinion magazines, which are basically just right. entertainment magazines. And then there's a whole subset of the public that's angry that these people take themselves very seriously and are self-important and they're wrong. And then it's like, that's a whole little like subset, which doesn't touch on, the, I think, the the COVID stuff. And, and Okay, but, yeah, go but, on, but Demir, I mean, I think it's worth, it's worth asking, what does it mean to be quote unquote wrong. I mean, there, so, well, okay. So I think, first of all, I don't have a huge problem with people being wrong about the future. That is not a domain that humans are meant to be good at assessing. I, I see that as the province of God, basically, that there are too many variables that you can't really isolate and you can't account for them. So that's why we're constantly surprised about the way the world unfolds, even mm -hmm. if we are so-called experts. I'm more concerned with assessing reality in the present. Mm. There are things that we can assess because they have happened or are currently happening. That seems to me to be where the problem is. I 
no one should be. So I don't I don't care if someone gets an election right. There are legitimate reasons to have not thought that Trump would win in 2016. That's not actually some kind of like undermining thing that, oh my God, someone failed to predict whether Trump was elected. Knowing what we knew then, mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of good reason to think that Trump would win unless you had a particular kind of insight in a very, so for example, if you're someone, um, if you're someone who understood something about human nature, that Trump in a very effective and unusual way was mm-hmm. speaking to something deep in the human heart and you saw that where others couldn't, that's not really about expertise. That's about a certain kind of insight into the human condition and even a sort of moral or immoral insight. And I, and I would just say like, just speaking for myself, I, I operate generally in two modes. There is my mode of moral exhortation, which is not actually about me being an expert. It's that I have ideas mm-hmm. and I want to share them they come from a particular moral, it's, it, that is about morality. That is about my starting assumptions. That is about my first principles. It's you being a that priest, is not or, necessi- just to use, use the language you used before about experts being elevated to priests. This is your priest mode, go on. Yeah, but I don't claim, so I, I'm making arguments, I'm not claiming that I'm right in any absolute sense because, mm-hmm. um, because it's not about being right or wrong. It's about, it's about whether you share my first principles and premises about what is good mm-hmm. and right. Mm-hmm. If someone doesn't believe in God, they're not going to agree with some of my arguments because some of my arguments come from that place. So that is not an expertise question. On the other hand, if I'm writing about, say, the Muslim Brotherhood or Middle East politics or something about religion, and I've spent years studying that, and we can assess something about a particular group. We can look at a group like the Muslim Brotherhood and we can establish basic facts on what the Muslim Brotherhood is. We -hmm. can maybe get to a consensus because some of it deals with morality. Do you like it? Do you like liberalism or do you like illiberalism or are you tolerant of illiberalism? Obviously someone who's a very staunch um, classical liberal will not like a conservative religiously oriented movement that wants to make Islamic law central in public life. So there's still a question of first principles, but there's also basic facts about what the Muslim Brotherhood actually is as a movement in the present and in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, go ahead, Oliver. If you have, if you jump in by by all means. I mean, uh, um, on any of yeah, the so stuff. Yeah, I would say so. Here's what I would say. Um, I think I would say that I think of expertise as just the simplest way to think of expertise in a domain. And Demir, I think you're right to question the whole notion of domains and what domain is somebody actually operating in. Um, but uh, the simplest notion of expertise in a domain is just there's a bunch of claims that might be made in the in that domain, and the expert is the person who does the best at knowing which ones are true and false, right? So the 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 point where I was really pretty sure that I wanted to disagree was this notion you said in 2016 there were these people who, not through their expertise but through something else. They were able to, they knew something about human nature that helped them understand what was going on. Or they knew, you know, they had some common sense to help them understand what they were going on. 
I just think there's no reason to exclude those things from our conception of expertise, right? If, if it helps you get it right, then it's part of expertise. Um, but so That's here, basically my view. But Oliver, here, you know, this is another thing. Uh, uh, Shadi and I, one of our close friends who's now actually running for, for parliament in, in France, uh, Ben Haddad, I remember he said this. He was, he was very clever about this. this was, I think he said like February or March after Trump was elected. He said, none of us predicted that this would happen. But all of us now have like are 100% sure that we know the exact reason why Trump got elected. And we can right. tell you 10 or 15 different great stories that are perfectly credible, believable, coherent, and, and even persuasive as to why it happened. The interesting thing, and the way you put it there, Shadi, about like you, maybe you had some kind of special insight into human nature that like got you, that made you right on Trump. But the interesting thing is, is that that maybe in fact it's not human nature that that like actually got Trump to win. That it's it's you know uh, like a complete uh, because it really was. It was a it was a confluence of of all sorts of contingencies and unrelated things that that led to a really unlikely thing for him right. to sneak through. And and despite like all the sort of obstacles, institutional obstacles to sneak through and make it, Trump himself didn't know he was going to win by many accounts, right? And so, right. and so, you know, that gets again at this question of expertise. It's not that certain people have a skill that allowed them to predict it. We all see how it happened now and we can all tell very good stories. And then we feel like we're expert. We can tell good stories about it. But there's it's all bullshit. Ultimately, you know, like people who got it right or didn't get it right. It doesn't fucking matter in, the, in some sort of way. I don't know. I, it's, that's my feeling on this like whole punditry game. I, I, I really... I feel like it's a deep fraud in a lot of ways. And, and I think we'd be healthier as a society if we acknowledged it and diminished it, like in our esteem in a big way and, 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 and just really desacralize the whole thing in a big way. I think we'd be just all happier. If not, like society would be better. But I know it's probably impossible, but just, again, throwing that out on the whole <laughs> Trump question. Yeah, so my friend, uh, Justin, uh, I always forget how to pronounce his last name, T.N. or Bieber? T.N. <laughs> uh, yeah, Justin Bieber, my BFF. Um, he's a philosophy professor at the University of Puget Sound. Um, and I think even before the election, he started compiling this Twitter thread. This is one of the things that actually brought me to Twitter when I think I saw an article about this. Um, and it, added, it ended up with over a thousand items. And actually, the Twitter, you can only have so many items in a thread. So I think he had to make a new thread. But it was basically a compendium of all of the things that people had said had caused Trump. Hmm. Um, and it was basically just a lot of people, as you were saying, right? It's not even just people being, oh, I'm so sure that I now know, even though I had no idea last week, right? It's a lot of people, and I was guilty of this too, a lot of people who had some, uh, you know, what's, what is the phrase that I'm looking for? Uh, a whipping post or some... You know, they had some thing. It was yeah. their thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what they were into. And, you know, for somebody like me, it might have been social justice, identity politics, wokeness, feminism, free speech, right? For somebody else, it might have been, you know, something completely different. Um, and what he basically showed with this thread was this was an election that was, you know, decided so closely and the cause of the actual electoral victory, uh, it could be attributed to to literally thousands of things, right? Oh. 
Um, and there was the whole, you know, this debate was never resolved. Everybody forgets that this debate debate kind of even happened. The the economic anxiety versus racial resentment debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I definitely think one response. So here's a bad response to expert failure. A bad response to expert failure is to say, well, the expert failed. So I'm just going to go with my gut, right? I'm going to go with my hunch and not really question it because I because I can't trust the experts. That, I think, is not going to do any better, right? Because the experts probably have better, are better at that than you are. Um, the, <laughs> the better response is to do something, and I think this, this relates to kind of some of the things Shadi's been writing and thinking about crime recently, um, the better thing to do is to think, how do I, how do I integrate a wider range of p- perspectives? How do I listen to a wider group of people and find a way to sort of think of everybody as being right about something, even if they're wrong about the big thing at the same time? Um, and that's not to say that you can always kind of do some sort of epistemic kumbaya or intellectual kumbaya where nobody's really wrong. Um, I think probably everybody's really wrong. But it's a question of how do you how do you find those people who have the empirical knowledge and how do you find those people who have this knowledge about human nature? How do you find the people who have some specific knowledge about something that maybe hasn't been empirically studied yet or might not be empirically tractable? And how do you kind of combine all these things together? Um, so that, that to like me, that. that is my approach, yeah. So there's there's a I, go ahead, Shadi. Go ahead. Well, well. <laughs> well, okay. Well, then I can. You know, I mean, it's interesting that you, you you're, you're mentioning that, Oliver. Because I, I was reminded I had a, a friend who I think I forget where he works now. He used to be at in um, he was in China with with the uh, Treasury Department, and really bright guy. Um, and he he pointed me to this book I never read, but just having you sort of describe it just reminded me. Mm-hmm. Is a uh, I just Google it. It's called Super Forecasting: The Art and Science of Prediction by Philip yeah, Tetlock. Yeah, yeah, Philip Tetlock. Right, yep. and 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 he studies these people who are good at exactly what you're describing, right? Which is mm-hmm. which is having that kind of humility, finding expertise, and then being able to somehow uh, judge these things. And and these people aren't necessarily domain experts necessarily, but they're very good at at somehow weighing and judging these sorts of things, right? But that still gets to my the question about again, like you know, what is the, the the purpose of expertise? And maybe this this can then get us into what's eating shoddy, and even what what I think prompted you you saying in writing this piece, which is you know there is a kind of domain expertise uh, on things like uh, let's say disease or crime, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is I think fundamentally different. It's what shoddy is saying is describing the present rather than necessarily forecasting the future. Now, obviously, a question of, of the pandemic, I guess, uh, the lines get blurred there and it becomes a question of, you know, domain expertise, describing the future and how that then leads to governance and like self-governance and decision-making and whether the being able to describe the present and analyze necessarily therefore means that those are the people that need to be making the decisions because that's also a different thing. It's not that we necessarily want to be governed by experts. We just want experts to be able to inform our governing decisions, right? Right. Okay, well, here, 
let me let me try to expand let me try to bring a couple of things together and and i i hope i can express this in a somewhat appropriate fashion inappropriate um, <laughs> is what we're I, I feel like what we're really getting at here is that, or maybe this is just what I think, and I'm projecting it onto both of you. I mean, most debates, <laughs> most debates aren't actually about facts. Most debates are about competing values. And this is where it gets, I think, somewhat confusing because we think we're debating reality. We think we're debating facts, but we're actu- what we're actually debating is different moral conceptions of the good. And we're basically, so So, for example, I mean, all of our debates about COVID were not really about what causes COVID. I do very much believe that medical professionals have much more insight into um, how infectious diseases operate and what actually, like what's the incubation period? How do we measure that? Mm-hmm. Um, what are different viral mutations? These are all things that others, experts, can adjudicate if they are medical um, health professionals in the relevant field. But our debates about COVID were not about that. I don't really remember people debating is the incubation period five days or six days, or really, well, I was say, is COVID real? I think most reasonable people, even people who are anti-vax, or anti-mask mandates, we're willing to acknowledge that COVID was a real disease. Mm -hmm. The issue at hand was something completely different. It's about how a society should organize itself in a time of crisis. And what things are worth prioritizing over others. Do you close down a society or an economy um, because of a virus? Or do you value, I mean, do you value, I mean, how much does economic growth matter versus other things? Mm-hmm. Um, there is, of course, a question of effectiveness about like whether mass mandates are actually effective. Um, but then there's a bigger question of even if mask mandates are effective to some degree, whether they are worth the cost, because there are trade-offs that we have to take into account. How we want to live as a society. Do we mm-hmm. want five-year-olds in elementary schools to live two years of their lives without seeing the facial expressions of their friends and classmates and their entire psychological makeup being affected because of that. These, there is no right, I mean, I might think there's a right answer to that, but that's only because I come at it with different moral premises about what is good, not what is true. Right, so, I, I do think that there's something to that, but at, at the same time, I'm not. So th- there's a bunch of people have written about this. You might be familiar, you know. Scott Alexander had this old post about mistake and conflict, um, and you know, I, I think Marxists worry about this too. I think a lot of people worry about what is the actual nature of political conflict, but it does seem to me that in some cases, at least. At least on the surface, political conflicts do sometimes seem to be about facts, right? So I think that the question of is it consistent with our values that children won't see the faces of their classmates for X amount of time, one of the things that we might 
right? If we're trying to actually answer that question, is that consistent with our values? One thing we might try to do is figure out, well, what would the consequences of that be? How would it actually affect the children, right? And then you get into an empirical debate about developmental psychology. Um, and the empirical debate, I think, can be... One thing I've learned is empirical debates can be just as vicious as, as value debates. Um, and even non-empirical debates, you know, in philosophy, in the philosophy of mind, debates about the nature of consciousness are incredibly, uh, incredibly uh, harsh. Um, you know, people call each other, uh, you know, one philosopher called another uh, a, a Deepak Chopra light on Twitter recently. We're talking about, you know, oh very, God. very, very, very famous. Oh, my goodness. And, and Savage. Yeah, that's... Those yeah, are that's, fighting words right there. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I, I actually do think that not all political not all political argument reduces to value conflict, in my opinion. Um because there are these there are these empirical issues that we have to resolve and that are that are quite difficult. If you know if the I always forget who who was minimizing and who was maximizing COVID at what points. Um but if COVID really had turned out to be just a flu in its original incarnation, then that would have been really important. And that was an empirical question, right? The empirical question about whether to lock down, right? There were all these empirical issues about how would how would it affect the economy, and would it lead to more suicides, more you know more damage to our institutions, um, things like that. And so I, I don't necessarily think right like if you assume answers to the empirical questions, and there does remain a value debate, but at the same by the same token, if you assume values, there can still remain an empirical debate. Um, so I, I tend to think that empirics and and kind of disputes over fact can can matter a lot in politics. And I genuinely think, you know, thinking about your crime stuff, right? Like when I talk to my very progressive friends, they really do believe they 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 really do believe there's no rise in crime, there's no crime problem. It's all some right wing narrative, right? Probably a racist narrative. And that, the question of whether there's actually a rise in crime seems like a straightforwardly empirical question to me. But the reason, but the reason that they don't treat it as such, the reason they, the reason they can't come to acknowledge that there is rising crime, even though the statistics are relatively clear, certainly in homicide rates um, as a subcategory, is is because of because of value. Well, first of all, they have a tribal affiliation that right. if they emphasize crime, they are concerned perhaps subconsciously or consciously that it will benefit the other side, i.e. Republicans, and that is the greater evil. Or they believe that finding ways to not, to not be supposedly racist, and for some reason, people think, some people, some liberals think that to even talk about crime openly is to somehow be racist when actually I would suggest it's the opposite since it's communities of color that are affected most by crime in major cities. But putting that all aside, they, but there could also be like a bigger moral argument that um, criminals, drug addicts on the street, the chronically homeless and the mentally ill um, 
that these categories are inherent, that these people are inherently more deserving of empathy because they are marginalized. That is a value judgment. That is a way of looking at the human condition. That is not something that can be assessed by fact. So what's motivating them to look at the numbers in a particular way, because basically what they're doing um, is that, and I discussed this a bit in my piece, which we'll include, include in the show notes, um, they're basically deciding which subcategories to emphasize. They're saying that overall crime has not gone up significantly. Right. And that's a way for them to get around the fundamental issue. But homicides have. And they're basically saying that that's not enough of a reason to be to be concerned about crime because the overall crime rates are still somehow comparable. They're using motivated reasoning because they want to mm -hmm. avoid the appearance of racism, they want their side to win, and they hate Republicans. Right. Those are all, yeah. those, those are not really empirical issues, right? No, I, I definitely agree that empirical debates can result from people being irrational in ways that are caused by their tribal commitments, their moral commitments, their political commitments, right? Um, but there's still the nature of the debate is still empirical, right? And it's still empirically resoluble. Um, and I, not that I'm so good at this, but I've managed to convince some people who were, who were really, you know, seemed to me to be tribally motivated reasoners of, of certain facts, right? That, you know, you kind of have to give them a way out, right? You have to give them a way of saying, here's a way that you can remain progressive and still think crime is going up, right? You have to give them a kind of escape hatch. Um, but I don't think it's impossible to convince a, a progressive that crime is going up. Um, you know, I saw one, I, I was talking on Twitter about expert failure in a different sense last night. Um, and people were asking for an example, and I happen to have this one at hand where um, this sociology professor, maybe it was in February, tweeted something like, uh, every time I tell my students that uh, white women benefit the most from affirmative action, their, their jaws drop. Um, and another sociologist basically answered like, but there's, there's no evidence that white women benefit the most from affirmative action. Um, and this was an interaction, it went more the way that you would probably expect, because, you know, very tribal, very motivated reasoning. Um, but in principle... There's no reason an affirmative action proponent shouldn't be like, oh, okay, I understand. Actually, it's not white women who benefit the most from affirmative action. That was just a false fact that I that I knew, right? And if anything, that should make them more supportive of affirmative action um, because that would be a, a kind of perverse uh, result of the policy. So I do think that people often arrive at their views through these kind of tribalistic or moralistic causes um, through their political affiliations. Um, but that doesn't mean, I don't think that necessarily means that they're sort of, uh, you know, set in stone or that they're, they're unmovable objects, um, immovable objects with regards to these fees. No. So, so the, 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 the interesting thing about um, the debate that you two are having about, politics and facts, you know, I, I, let's leave crime aside. I should maybe get back to that again, but you know, even on the COVID stuff, the way 
Oliver, you were describing it. I think both of you are going back and forth on it. You know, I, I keep going back to the, the, you know, the question of Sweden and mm-hmm. the arguments that they made at that point. Um, part of it was, I don't know if it was a genuine insight or a kind of fatalism about how much the disease could or couldn't be controlled. So therefore, yeah, sure, making some kind of value judgments about, you know, resigning oneself to a certain amount of uh, old people necessarily having to die off and then balancing that with, with other things. But then again, you know, I, I, I just pulled up as, as we were discussing this sort of like, you know, Sweden's um, death rates within Europe uh, as of May 29th by country, you know, per million population. And they're like smack dab in the middle of it. And again, you know, mm-hmm. it's like whether any of those judgments of fact or values actually mattered in outcomes is kind of irrelevant. And the politics, you know, I guess revolved around fact and around argument, but it's, it's, how do I put it? It's about the authority, I think, of any political leader to be able to in a democracy, make an argument and then have society respect that. And maybe that gets us to something about what I think is interesting about this like crisis of expertise, basically, is that, again, I think we've set up this narrative that experts rule or should rule, but there's, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a kind of credibility problem in our society, which is about, you know, again, to that, that silly New Yorker argument, uh, argument about the plane, about sort of, you know, regular people and elites and why can't I fly the plane? But that points to something else, which is a, which is a, a crisis of authority, basically. That, and these people's authority, I would say, is not being undermined by the fact that they're wrong, but by the fact that they actually don't deserve respect anymore. Like our entire uh-huh. sort of elite class is not worthy of respect. And, you know, I mean, I haven't been following the, the crime stuff, especially not in, in California. I've noticed enough that, that Chesa Boudin, Boudin, however you say his name, is, 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 you know, a stand-in for a certain kind of, you know, woke, liberal, like, fecklessness mm-hmm. that I think undermined him. And then, you know, the experience of, you know, being gaslighted about certain things uh, when people are experiencing rising crime coupled with all sorts of culture war narratives, helped undermine his authority. And guess what? He lost his post because his authority was undermined enough that when he, you know, was recalled, he got recalled. And that's that. Still, none of that gets to the factishness of any of this in my mind. It has mm-hmm. it has more to do with with a kind of more moral rot. Yeah, something like that. Like like an authority, a rot in the authority of the of the the weight that that this elite class has, not necessarily the expert class that the elite class has. Because again, I, I sort of want to gesture at that thing. It's that it's it's not so much that we are governed by technocrats. It's that, that, that I mean, there's a, a fantasy about this that we want, you know, experts to like make decisions for us. But the problem is, is, is uh, making the argument, making people believe it, making people follow it. And whether you rely solely on something called expertise to make that argument 
to fill in for a certain kind of moral gravitas that generally our leadership class used to have, and in any society you need to have to be able to get people to follow. That seems to me like. But isn't actual, it also? Yeah, go on. Yeah, but Demir, isn't it also that technocrats aren't even good on technocratic terms? Maybe you're getting at that a little bit. Like, if they were mm-hmm. actually good at being technocrats, then there could be a stronger argument for technocracy and expertise. The problem is that for whatever reason, they aren't actually good at what they're supposed to be good at, putting aside, I mean, even if we just want to put aside all the moral concerns, I mean, this is the th- this is the tragedy of the Biden administration, how you have, in, in at least in, in many domains, the best and the brightest. Ah, they're not. The best and the brightest aren't even particularly good. They're not, being... not particularly good or bright. Like, but anyway. No, yeah. but no, but no. What? <laughs> no, no. Yes, yes, but go on. <laughs> no, look it. Look, I guess. I guess you know. I I'll grant you all that. But I guess to me, what's interesting about it is is more this fact that that I'm not sure politics is about that or ever was. I think that we've told ourselves stories that that we're drifting in that direction. There's it's a weird modernist thing that it is, but. Politics always is about ordering people to do stuff and having them obey or agree and do it. That, that's governing. And mm-hmm. in a democracy, there's, there's an element of, even in a democracy where, we're, where we live under this illusion that the people govern themselves, which is not true, um, we, we, we still have this, this, there's an important element of, of the moral authority to govern. And I think we've displaced that with all this like nonsense talk about expertise and being right. But I'm not sure that even if experts were right all the time, it would make a difference to, to the problems, some of these discussions about the lack of authority to govern. I think that's at, at the core of this, not the failure of expertise. I don't know. Agree to disagree with me on that. But like, I think that's what's, what's sort of at the heart of all of this. At some level, though, I think we, we could say that Voters or electorates or populations get the leaders they deserve. I mean, there is a kind of interaction effect here. If if our leadership class is so feckless, so incompetent, so corrupt despite their credentials, it's not as if the voters are absolved of responsibility, that there's a sort of collective failure here that's deeper. And maybe this is actually a good segue into the wisdom of crowds, so to speak, because we always like it when we have a guest who comes on who writes an article or a book that makes reference to <laughs> the wisdom of crowds, because of you course, do discuss yeah. this briefly. It's not at the forefront of your piece. And I don't actually know to what extent you actually believe this particular part of what you wrote, but you do say, and I'll just quote this, I'll try to quote it properly. Um, if voters are more likely to vote correctly than incorrectly, and their votes are statistically independent of each other, then as the number of voters increases, the probability that voters get the right result approaches 100%. In large enough numbers, thinking for themselves, the Vox Popula, the Vox Populi, i.e. the crowds, will make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Which is a fascinating statement about, which is I think very much in line with my with my sort of somewhat idealistic views about democracy is that, you know, um, the people 
the people are right even when they're wrong. That there is sort of an inherent wisdom that comes from aggregating large numbers of mm-hmm. votes. So even if a large number of people vote for Donald Trump, there is a certain truth to what they have just done. In other words, there is a reason that they voted the way that they did. And just that very fact by itself tells us something important. Yeah, no, I, 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 com- I completely agree. And I do think that, I think there was more of this in, in kind of the first draft of the article, but I think there was still a bit of it there. The flip side of the, of the, of the expertise debate is sort of the ordinary person debate. Um, and the ordinary person debate, to my mind, is uh, a debate in large part coming out of psychological research and sociological research about all the sorts of biases that people may have. You have the cognitive biases and the heuristics and biases literature, and you have all this racial resentment scores, uh, all sorts of, you know, Hillary lost because she was a woman, right? You know, women have it so hard running for, for office because the voters are such terrible sexists and stuff like that. So the flip side of the experts, just how good are the experts, is just how good are ordinary people. Um, so there's a question of if people have all these biases, right, then they might be more likely to get things wrong than they are to get things right. Or the the, the biases might be a, a way of correlating views together so that people are no longer really thinking for themselves in a statistical sense. Um My view is that although these things exist, they're not the right way to think about the ordinary person's reasoning is not what I think in some ways the Clinton 2016 campaign was saying is not the way that a lot of academics think. The right way to think about a person's reasoning is not what terrible, horrible biases probably caused this person to be reasoning this way. Um, but rather, what is what is it about the world that caused them to think this way? What happened to them? What facts are they kind of in touch with? Or what perspectives are they in touch with that led them to have these viewpoints? Um, and these perspectives may be partial, but if you, as we were saying before, right, if you aggregate enough partial perspectives, you start to get the whole picture, right? Um and a lot of political discourse that I see is ways of undercutting people's partial perspectives so that somehow the whole per- the whole picture doesn't include them at all. So you say all these people, all these people concerned about crime, it's not that they're actually observing any crime. We don't need to include that perspective at all because there's some bias that is leading them to simply not perceive reality correctly. There's no literally no crime at all is leading them to this. And you get, you know, you get this approach a lot from the, you know, theorists of propaganda. You know, my friend Jason Stanley has his book on propaganda. Or, you know, theorists of media facts. Oh, so, your friends? With yeah, Jason yeah. Stanley? Yeah, yeah, I like Jason. Well, that's good. You know, no, that's, I, no, I, 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 you know, I say that half jokingly, um, but also it's, it's somewhat encouraging that people of very different persuasions on opposite sides can still maintain a friendship. Oh yeah. No, he's been, he's been very nice to me. I think we're, we're similar to each other in that 
as long as you're nice to us, we find it hard to be not nice to you in return a lot of the time. Um, a good way of living, to be fair. Period. But yeah, um, but you know, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But um, I so another example of this was um, Will Stansel, who has me blocked on Twitter. I forget, so I always forget what his job is. Um, he's some sort of, you know, progressive, wonky, semi-wonky type. So he had a tweet when people were starting to notice inflation was happening. He had this tweet that was like, if there weren't, if there weren't media reports about inflation, nobody would think inflation is actually going on. It's just the reporting, right? It's just the reporting about the inflation that makes people think that inflation is occurring. And that, I think, is you learn so much about a certain perspective and it's not necessarily a political perspective. It's an epistemological perspective or a psychological perspective about how people come to their viewpoints that nobody is actually in touch with like the firmament of reality. Nobody is actually buying things and noticing the prices. Nobody is actually trying to make decisions that, that concern their checkbook, their financial situation, right? They're just getting narratives kind of beamed into their head by by media outlets and that's how everybody comes to their viewpoints um but Oliver, so that to me isn't that exactly though the problem with the this elevating of expertise though and i mean it leads to that kind of mentality right i mean i guess you know the 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 condorcet's jury theorem that you know you're talking about and this access to reality that's the that's just pure empiricism right and and the idea is that you know you get like a a more perfect picture empirical picture of it by aggregating, you know, experience of a large enough number of people. And I guess that's one way to talk about democracy. And, you know, basically you have ideologues like, like Chesa Boudin or, you know, mm -hmm. this guy in, in Philly who, you know, are, are either slicing and dicing the data in dishonest ways, uh, telling people that they're not experiencing things, but ultimately there's like a, a ground faith in democracy that, People live in an empirical existence, and you can lie to them only so much before, uh, before you know, in a reasonably free system, they will revolt and throw the bums out. Right? Mm -hmm. That's the that's the faith in democracy. I guess I haven't read Stanley's book on 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 propaganda, but but I imagine, and this is what ideologues like this Stancil tool or 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 you know any of these progressive uh, uh, you know uh, DAs or whatever, you know they 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 are gaslighting, they are using uh, arguments and trying to shape reality through it. Um, and mm -hmm. the argument against that is, is that like in a reasonably free enough uh, society and perhaps in a diffuse and rebellious and ungovernable society such as ours, at some point voters will say, no, screw you and just throw them out, right? Right. And so, I mean, again, though, you know, it's to me, that still points to I mean, that, that, that kind of, you know, how do I put it, uh, interface between facts, empiricism, and democracy makes a lot of sense. It's when you start elevating that beyond anything more than kind of a, a kind of horse sense, right? And mm -hmm. you start talking about, you know, using knowledge and specialized knowledge to be able to uh, get at truth, this is where we get into trouble by elevating that too high. And I'm not saying again, you know, this is, I'm not, I'm not being the kind of, you know, 
populist rube about a lot of this, saying that like that all that matters is horse sense and and you know experts are are full of crap. But I am just sort of getting at that. I I think that the problem is is that we collectively overestimate or or mi- not even overestimate. That's the wrong way to put it. I think we misplace the role that expertise not only should but does play in our society and a lot of these fights are these like weird meta fights which we then mistake for politics about like getting angry about this stuff that isn't working in the way it it, it, we think it should be working but it doesn't even work that way practically case number one the the idiot in 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 san francisco is is freaking jobless right now hooray Mm -hmm. you know i don't know Okay, but okay, Demir. Well, so I don't know who I'm disagreeing with here, but <laughs> I very much, um, I'm, I'm almost positive that people, for the most part, do not live their lives empirically, and I think there's a lot of academic research that points us, especially recently, that points us in this direction. And 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 I mean that can either be good or bad. I mean, I I think that. Feelings are ultimately extremely important. I mean, feelings may be based on perception, sensory perception, what you see and experience, but you're only experiencing some things and not others. But, um, and I'll just mention, I just looked at it right now just to make sure I have the experiment correct. But anyway, um, in in Achen and Bartel's book, Democracy for Realists, which I think Mm -hmm. is an excellent book that I mention a lot. For example, they write, the most important factor in voters' judgments is their social and psychological attachment to groups. So basically what determines people's ultimate conclusions mm-hmm. are basically tribal tribal instances. I don't even mean that pejoratively because I don't actually think it's necessarily bad to be tribally motivated. This is human nature and we should acknowledge it for what it is. But there's one interesting natural experiment that they discuss in their book and it just goes to show that you can basically prime people to change their opinions in seconds. So in this experiment, they reminded they reminded independents, independent voters, that whites had become a minority in California. And just by telling them that and priming them in that direction, mm-hmm. it made them, quote unquote, significantly more likely to lean Republican. Okay, that's one example. In another experiment, um, introducing a microaggression among Asian American students increased their Democratic Party identification by thirteen percent. Mm-hmm. What what is that? So one, though? I mean, but hold on, explain that last one because ultimately, as I understand, what took out Chesa in San Francisco is. Uh, Asians, actually, Asian activists mm-hmm. that that felt like he was actually uh, not actually prosecuting crimes against them. So well, how does it? Yeah, because but, but that also goes to I mean, but that's also like what's a, microaggression in that that's case? A, that's emotional. Know. OK, but this is also several years ago. Right. So exactly. basically so their entire case, there, like even that word is bullshit. Like microaggression what? makes them turn Democrat. Maybe not. Maybe a macroaggression makes them makes them vote a progressive idiot out. Okay, but the basic point here is that if a minority group, if you trigger them with a racist comment, they're more likely to vote for the party that defends them from racism. And we know this simply look at look at Muslims and Arabs post 9/11. Um voting for Trump in larger it, and larger numbers. No. Okay, well well, okay, but Muslims of immigrant origin 
before 9-11 were voting primarily for Republicans. Once they mm-hmm. realized that Republicans are kind of racist against Muslims and Arabs, they, right. they almost completely shifted to the other party. Now, this is changing more recently, as we've talked about. There are a growing number of Muslims who have a soft spot for Donald Trump for reasons we don't have to go into right now, except for the fact, I should note, that Donald Trump has contributed to um, a wonderful, mile, a beautiful milestone <laughs> in American history that for the first time in for the first time in our country there may very well be a muslim bender and we have donald trump his efforts really his his dogged his dogged and vigorous efforts to thank for that mm-hmm. so i mean putting all that aside i mean things change obviously but i'm just saying that you know if you make people feel like they're victims of racism they are going to gravitate towards a party that can secure their um, protection, basically, or make them feel mm-hmm. less attacked in, in racist terms. Anyway, just to say that it's very easy to prime people in very short periods of time. Oliver, go ahead. Yeah, so I was just going to say, you know, if memory serves, you know, Democracy for Realists is used by uh, Michael Hannon, a philosopher, um, to argue, I think that what they call political realism um, he sometimes calls political expressivism or political eliminativism, but basically it's the idea that people don't really have strong beliefs about politics, um, and that belief isn't really an important category for um, explaining political behavior. Does that sound right? Yes, maybe slightly overstated, but yes, that's part of their argument. Yeah, um, but I'm not necessarily sure how those. Um, yeah, so I, I do think that this is this is this is an important challenge um, to basically any theory that um, people are are doing politics based on what's going on in the world around them. Um, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Like, so we have to kind of try to reconstruct what the what the decision process was of these people in the studies, right? Because if if all we're saying is, well, they became they they became more Republican because they came to believe that whites were a minority in California, and they believed that um, Republicans would deal with that situation better, then that doesn't necessarily seem so different from uh, you know any other kind of political decision making pro- process based on beliefs. Um, so it's not it's not completely clear to me right it might be that they are so I'm completely open to saying okay people are you know people said this about Trump right people said he's just everything he believes is just what the last person who spoke to him told him right so it could be that this is something that we can say about ordinary people as well that what what they believe about politics is simply you know, they're easily primed. They're easily led into thinking that whatever they heard five minutes ago is super salient because they have bad memories. Maybe they have bad object permanence or something. Um, hmm. But it's not its not clear to me that unless we think that people would reject right 
unless we think that people would reject uh, true claims and believe false claims at like a really high rate, um, it's not clear to me that, that that explanation of what's going on with people necessarily gets us outside the realm of, of being kind of empirically in touch with reality. It is true that one explanation for it is like people are, and of course this is highly plausible, people are super sensitive in politics to what they think of as threats to their group. People vote, people think um, what's good for their group is good and what's bad for their group is bad in a, in a kind of motivated way, right? I don't think these things yeah. are impossible. I think these things are super likely. Um, but the question of how do they get information about what what threats to their group are, right? How do they how do they decide what's actually going on with their group? Whether their group is actually under some sort of threat? Well, that is the point at which people, some people think they simply are victims of propaganda, and other people think they really are being in touch with with reality, right? So I think that is the more, you know, that's the point at which some people think there's no crime wave. It's all propaganda. Um, and then you say, okay, then people aren't even being rational at assessing which things are threats to their group. Um, and that, I think, that's where there would be some difference of opinion. You know, the, the, the only part that we, again, haven't touched on in discussing politics this way is, is again, the role of leadership, right? And, and again, this gets back to the thing I keep sort of harping on, this, yeah. is this question of moral authority, the, the ability to get people to follow you and to do what you tell them to do, right? And, and um, so much of, I think, the stuff, I, I, I really do like the Democracy for Realists book. I think it's, 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 it's excellent. Um, but it, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's even in, in framing our politics through the lens of expertise and knowing the truth and then getting tied up in a lot of this stuff about, about, uh, um, you know, uh, what constitutes reality? What is the interface between reality and, and, and the average voter? Do they have access to empiricism? Are they swayed by arguments? I mean, ultimately I think politics is about arguments and about persuading people in a lot of this stuff and democratic politics anyway, not in others, but I'd say even autocratic politics or even sort of strongman politics, you have to have a level of charisma and an ability to still, mm -hmm. you know, get the system, even a repressive system to basically do your bidding. You know, you can't, I, I guess on the, on the limit, you can run something like in North Korea, which is just like a, a pure police terror state. That's, you know, mutual terror all the way down that, that keeps people in line. But even then there's some sort of belief in, in charismatic leadership and, you know, divine right of this family that, 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 that runs the whole thing. I guess what I'm getting at though is, 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 you know, it's the, the, for me, the more I've thought about technocracy and a lot of these problems, and I think, you know, your essay really got me thinking about this a lot too. It's that, okay. it's that, it's that still, it's that the, the main problem of why we're getting this whole problem wrong is that we elevate this class of experts to something, both, both we who criticize experts and the experts themselves and the expectations of the society like place far too high a level of importance on these people. We bring down the the and we 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 denigrate the whole sort of like role of leadership or the role of mm -hmm. charisma, which is also what Trump did. I mean, it's the other thing that people yeah. refuse to accept about him. The man's charismatic, he's funny, and he's entertaining, and that that counts for a lot in a democracy. People like that, yeah. you know. And it and and it has nothing to do with facts or reality or things like that. It's like. He, he tells compelling stories. And you know what? Like, 
he tells, he told very compelling stories about Washington, D.C., that as a denizen of Washington, D.C., with every new, you know, moral crisis that befalls our leadership class of corruption and other stuff that comes out, um, I, I'm like, well, you know, I, I, I understand why, why, why Trump's that narrative was pretty, because was pretty compelling. Because here we are, a bunch of like overeducated shitheads running around, and <laughs> and and we're we're we're, yeah. we're we're corrupt and shitty, you know. And it's it's goddamn it, fucking string us up, you know, because we deserve it, because we have no authority to govern that we've claimed for ourselves, you know. Mm-hmm. And so so that's that's the other part of it, and it has, and, and it has less to do with the failure of experts to be expert about domains. And has more to do with like this broader moral failure to me, I guess, you know, Mm -hmm. the ability to just like command, I don't want to say authority, but yeah, command authority, command respect, command deference from a voting public that's looking for leadership, you know? Yeah, no, I I don't, I don't necessarily disagree. Um, I don't know that much about charisma. You know, I don't think of myself as a, you know, particularly charismatic person. Um, I do think that there are, you know, I do think that there are, you know, there are, um, I don't know. I do think that there are, there are some, you know, well, I don't even know. I don't know what counts as charisma in the social media age, right? If, if some epidemiologist starts saying we're all going to die and gets a million Twitter followers from it. You know, is that a kind of charisma? I don't. I, I don't know. Is that a kind of moral? Is that a lot of people assigning moral? You know, hmm. giving them a moral leadership quality? I don't know. Um, Charisma's you in probably the eye have of the a beholder. I mean, some people don't think. I think that Trump was very charismatic, and I, I you know, I do have evidence of tweets that I put out before he was elected, before he even won the primary. Mm-hmm. Where I was, I don't want to say gushing, but I was extremely impressed by his oratory. And I remember being fixed to this screen, listening to his speeches, because I'm like, "This is this is just fucking brilliant stuff." Yeah, this is like I've and never it was seen natural. anything. It was like all, that. yeah, it was all by smell or by horse sense, as, yeah. as Demir said. It. No, but I'll tell you. Yeah, you and know, he and you're gone. Hmm. No, go on, Shani. No, I mean, just as someone who is more primed to the reality of demagogues, as someone who was generally studied third world locations and lived in third world locations. Um, you know, demagogue, like you, there is a certain kind of strong men, authenticity, mm-hmm. toughness, doesn't give a shit about what they're saying and says whatever comes to mind. And unfortunately, a lot of people seem to appreciate that. Now we can say that this char- this charisma is bad. It's dangerous, but it doesn't deny the fact that there is a certain way of speaking that is compelling. But also, I really want to emphasize Trump is legitimately hilarious. And I wish that yeah. more people appreciated this this very basic. This is true. Yeah. This is, does not require yeah, expertise. No, no, Un- undeniable, undeniable. Undeniable. Um, and although really, although like, people deny it, and yet people deny it. But Yeah, yeah, um, yeah they, they do. And it pains me that to this day there are people, and this is how I actually know that some people are just like, really annoying and irritating and just not fun to be around like these these kind of like smug liberals are like oh my god you think you think trump was funny and like look if you don't understand that trump was funny like i think that it's going to be hard for us to be friends it's like <laughs> at that level of like fundamental truth 
Yeah. Anyway, that's just like a little digression. I'll, I'll say, Oliver, you know, one thing though, you're saying about, you know, you get a, you get an epidemiologist on Twitter, uh, gets a million followers saying, you know, death is coming, right? Um, and is that charisma? That's, I think it's a good point because I guess you're, you're pointing at, at, at like Fauci. And I mean, a, a weird cult of personality did emerge around mm-hmm. him, right? And, but I guess, I guess maybe the way I would frame the Fauci phenomenon, right? You know, even using your your language about you know these these factories of of expertise, you know, like these meta meta expertise, meta credentialing sort of institutions. Clearly, those were at play um, with Fauci. But I would say that that maybe it's not charisma. He's not a very charismatic guy. But the the clout he got, the political clout, mm-hmm. is tied to again this kind of. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's 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 this transposition onto this misplacement of where a, a larger chunk of our population thinks is the the actual functional role of expertise in our in our government. Now again, what does that mean? I mean, clearly it's a phenomenon. We we observed it. You know, you had people like really culting about Fauci making t-shirts and whatever the hell and yeah, yeah. You know, really fan fanboying, fangirling Fauci. So, I mean, that's Andy's. a real phenomenon, right? Sorry? What did you say, Sean? <laughs> oh, sorry, you didn't hear that? No, I didn't. You, I, was, I, was, I just said, I just said, I said panties. Panties, yes. Fauci panties. Yeah, there's always an element. I mean, there's always, there's a lot of weird, you know, the, the, the things liberal women say about some very ordinary looking men who <laughs> occupy certain roles. Um, always very confusing to me, but I, I don't understand. No, but, women but very so well, I mean, so. you know, I, 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 you know, I guess I, I don't have a really good answer for that in the in the sort of argument that I've been putting out, you know, inspired by your essay about this is is what is that right? It's it's yeah. a certain kind of non charismatic, like cult of misplaced faith and expertise, I guess, and it's a real phenomenon. We see it. Um, and I, I guess I don't have like a really good way to sort of contextualize that in, in my framework. So I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I think there is something there to that uh, that doesn't really fit for me. But yeah, it's real, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So we are we are getting close to our end time. But before we do end, I want to ask a final question to Oliver. It's about an upcoming project that you tantalized us with. Tantalized uh-huh. us with. In, in, you know, when we were emailing earlier, you're working, I believe, on a project about shame. And I think it would be a nice little tease for our dear listeners if you could just say a little bit about what you have discovered about shame. Uh, yeah, well, I haven't. I, I, maybe it's going to be a little bit of a letdown. No, no, it's <laughs> fine. What I, what I did was I reviewed a book about shame. Um, and okay. uh the book made me think shame could be a really great, essentially the book was a letdown, like most of the books that I review. Um, <laughs> I think shame shame could be a really interesting, like, what do we think is worth shaming? And when do we think it's okay to shame per- somebody, right? So in a liberal democracy, we think it's okay if people disagree with us, right? It takes all kinds. We have to be tolerant. Um, and there are all these ways in which shaming, right, if, if you're kind of part of the wokeness industrial complex, 
you were taught to think shaming was bad. You were taught to think slut shaming was bad and kink shaming was bad and all these things related to sex, right? It's just bad to shame people for who they are. Um, and at the same time, there's been this kind of complete acceptance of massive public shame as a political tool uh, when people disagree with you politically, right? It's part when people say, you know, this isn't, you know, you, you still have free speech. This is just part of the consequences for speech. You know, the consequences for speech that they're talking about, one of the main ones is being kind of publicly shamed. Uh, John Ronson has this book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Um, and so basically I think shame, I wish somebody had written, you know, people say you shouldn't review a book like this and I don't know why. Often I read a book and I'm like, well, I, I'll tell you what the book, what book you should have written instead. <laughs> um, people say that's a bad kind of review, but I've never understood, you know, to me that's like, that's exactly what you should do as a reviewer. Maybe somebody else will write the good book instead of the bad book that I actually read. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I think an in, a really interesting book about shame from the perspective of kind of liberal political theory would just be like, how should we think about shame in in a kind of a pluralistic society where we think people can kind of do their own thing, believe their own thing, have their own viewpoints, have their own practices, you know, in the privacy of their own home or whatever. Um, to what extent does shame as a social tool meant to uh, get people in line with the program, with the kind of dominant moral and political program, to what extent does kind of massive public shaming uh, violate liberal norms? To what extent is it not in the spirit of liberalism? Um, so that I think is... I love that. I, I don't plan to necessarily take that up. There, there, there's, there's too many value judgments in it for me to be really confident about, you know, how to weigh all these different factors myself. But I think that is what, what the interesting thing to think about is regarding shame. Um, what does it really have a place in a liberal society? And, you know, a lot of people have said that it doesn't about things like sex and now say it does about things like politics. Um, and so there's a, there's a very, you know, there's the possibility of taking a very, um, you know, a very uh, cynical stance, which would be something like, um, you know, well, people think, people think shame is okay when they have access to like the shame mechanism, right? When they can cause shame in others and people think shame is not okay when others can cause shame in them. Right. That's a very cynical view, but I think there's probably something to that. Okay. You know, not, not just saying this, like that is a fascinating set of topics you just introduced. There's so much that I could say and would want to say about this in part because I think, you know, as you're sort of suggesting, shame has a social utility. The question is what is worth shaming? Um, and um, so, you know, I look forward to seeing what you come up. Like you should, you know, definitely keep us posted on that if you do decide to yeah. develop that a little well, the, bit Well, the review should come out, the review should come out in the examiner in a few days, but, uh, you know, I hadn't really thought of it, but now that you're, you're now that you're saying it, maybe there is something actually more robust I could write about you know, how shame relates yeah. to liberalism. Maybe maybe I could actually do the 
the thing instead of just criticizing others, which is sort of what I like to do. From the comfort yeah, you could of call my, you could call your book couch. or your article the case for kink shaming or something like that. <laughs> the return, yeah, um, that'll that'll get that'll get some click, uh, some click at least. <laughs> okay, well, okay, this was awesome. Yeah, Oliver, thanks. Thanks a lot. so much this for coming on, Oliver. Yeah, it's great talking to you guys. All right, bye. To be continued. Okay, bye bye. Yeah.